Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Saving Medicare, now and for the future. Please welcome Bob Moffitt, Senior Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation Center for Health and Welfare Policy. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for coming. Um, our topic today is Medicare, uh, the largest healthcare payer in the American system. Uh, a huge and growing uh, a federal entitlement. In a little more than 10 years, Medicare will increase in enrollment from 65 million to nearly 80 million enrollees, and total program spending will double. Uh, today, roughly, it's $1 trillion. In uh, within 10 years, it will be uh, nearly $2 trillion. At the same time, uh, Medicare is rapidly changing. Today, roughly half of all senior citizens are enrolled in Medicare Advantage, a system of private uh, coverage, which is the leading alternative to traditional Medicare. And Medicare Advantage is a defined contribution system. And what that means is, is that the government makes a contribution on behalf of a beneficiary to the beneficiary's chosen plan. Uh, given current trends, uh, Medicare Advantage will soon be the dominant form of Medicare coverage. The question before the House and before the nation is a very, very big one. That is, how do we provide high-quality medical care to a huge and rapidly growing older population at a cost that is affordable not only to seniors, but also to America's taxpayers? In our new book, Modernizing Medicare, uh, from Johns Hopkins University Press, a dozen of our colleagues in the health policy community have provided very specific answers to that question. Three of them are with us here today. Brian Miller is a practicing physician and assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University and a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. John Goodman is president of the Goodman Institute. Uh, Dr. Goodman is a prominent healthcare economist, and he's widely known throughout the United States as the father of health savings accounts. Doug Holtzikin is president of the American Action Forum and a former director of the Congressional Budget Office. And now with the debt limit uh, facing the country, uh, you can expect to see Doug Holtzikin on your national television shows <clears throat> dealing with uh, the debt limit and all of the other problems that uh, uh, are, are connected with it. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I would like uh, our uh, guest uh, to, uh, to come uh, up and, uh, and join us, uh, and we'll have a discussion about Medicare. Brian, uh, I'm going to start us off with a question for you. Right now, as you know, millions of senior citizens are, are voting with their feet um, and enrolling in private Medicare Advantage plans, uh, which is a defined, defined benefit program, Medicare Advantage, as opposed to uh, traditional Medicare, which is a defined benefit uh, program. Uh, you, would, you deal with this in Chapter 6 of the book that has been published by Hopkins University Press. Um, what are the inherent trade-offs facing seniors when they have to make a decision about whether to enroll in traditional Medicare or Medicare Advantage? So first of all, Bob, thank you for having this event and having this conversation about the Medicare program. Uh, Medicare today is really, as you said, two different programs. It's traditional Medicare and it's Medicare Advantage. When you are in the employer-sponsored market and you pick your health benefits, right? you're signing up for a health plan. It's either a self-insured health plan or you're purchasing a planned product. When you end up in the Medicare marketplace, things are a little different. So you turn 65, you have developed end-stage renal disease or ALS, you qualify for Medicare, 
you sign up for traditional Medicare A plus B benefits, right? So hospital benefits and also physician benefits. Then you also have to pick a prescription drug plan. And then the traditional Medicare program has no catastrophic out-of-pocket limits. So you, you then pick supplemental mm. coverage. So you've made three choices. The alternative, of course, is picking Medicare Advantage, where you have one choice. You're getting traditional coverage. You're getting supplemental coverage uh, or Medigap coverage. You're also 90% of plans include a prescription drug plan. And then you also get supplemental benefits frequently. About two-thirds of plans to three-quarters have dental, vision, and hearing. So if you think about it, if you are 65 years old and entering Medicare, and you have three or five chronic conditions, you're on a fixed income, you have a limited number of assets, right? You don't have an infinite, you, you can't spend all that you want to. Right. And so making one choice and getting an integrated comprehensive health benefits package is something, you know, it sounds like a bunch of garbly gook, but for the average consumer, it's actually much easier to make that choice. That choice, as I said, it gives them financial protections. Uh, they don't have to make as many choices. And then the trade-off, of course, you're like, there's always a catch, there's always a cost. And the cost for the beneficiary is that they accept a network, right? They can't see every single doctor, they can see the doctors and the health plan network. But if you've been, you know, you were working for 30 years, you had health insurance through your employer, you had health insurance through the exchange, you had a network, you couldn't see every single doctor. And so that trade-off for today's new retirees is not so scary. And then also there's usually some utilization review mm. and some access controls that go with that. So it's a trade-off. The beneficiary says, I'm gonna get more benefits, I'm going to get more financial protections, I'm gonna have some limitations on how I use that. So it's richer benefits and more convenience. Richer, richer benefits, more convenience, and frankly, it's easier to choose, right? Right, because you're making one choice instead of three choices. And at the other, and the other, the other evidence is is that with so many, so many plans, uh, basically, it's actually more affordable in many cases. Yeah, it is more yeah. affordable to the beneficiary, right? right? Because if you have to purchase traditional Medicare and pay premiums for that, then you have to pay prescription drug plan premiums, yeah. and then you have to pay Medigap premiums, right. and then good luck you know, being 70, 80 years old and trying to get vision, dental, or hearing coverage in the private market, right? right. Well, actually, you can get it in the private market. You get it through your Medicare Advantage plan. Right. John, um, in 2003, uh, Republicans in Congress enacted the Medicare Modernization Act, which created uh, the Medicare Advantage program, a system of competing private plans as the alternative to traditional Medicare. A few years later, uh, Congress, uh, with the support of President uh, Obama, uh, enacted the Affordable Care Act and uh, called Obamacare. And Obamacare created a system of private plan competition in state-based health insurance exchanges. On paper, uh, John, they look very similar. They seem very similar. But you make the argument that, in fact, they are quite different and that Medicare Advantage works much better than the health insurance exchanges. Could you explain why that, you th why that is true? Yes, they are very similar on paper um, and very different in practice. And uh, that's why 50% of the seniors are in uh, a Medicare Advantage plan and over in the Obamacare exchanges, uh, the non-subsidized part of that market was at a death spiral. It, it was going away because no one was buying until Congress came along and added on subsidies even for people making half a million dollars a year. Uh, what's the difference? Well, Medicare Advantage is the only place in our healthcare system where if a doctor discovers that a patient has a change in medical condition, uh, he can forward that information to the insurer, which in this case is Medicare, and get a higher premium for his plan. And that is why in Medicare Advantage you have special needs plans that specialize in diabetes and heart care and, and other illnesses and, and want to attract people with these problems. This is the only place in the healthcare system where this happens. There is no employer plan in this country that wants an employee with high healthcare costs. There's no commercial insurer that wants one. There's nobody in the Obamacare market that wants one. They're all uh, trying to attract the healthy and run away from, from the sick. Now, in regular traditional Medicare, there are 10,000 things that uh, Medicare pays doctors to do. Mm -hmm. And not one of those 10,000 tasks has, uh, has a, as, as its uh, objective uh, or states 
that uh, your job is to make the patient healthier hmm. or to cure a disease. Um, over in the Medicare Advantage plans, uh, by contrast, um, people lose uh, plans lose money if they don't uh, cure diseases and make people healthier. This is George uh, Alverson, uh, former uh, uh, chairman and CEO of Kaiser, who says that in the regular Medicare plan, 20% of diabetic uh, patients uh, get foot ulcers, and 20% of those uh, turn into amputations. Uh, this country is spending $8 billion a year on, on amputations. Over in the Medicare Advantage plan, uh, plans, by contrast, even in the, the moderately successful ones, they have half as many ulcers and uh, a third as many amputations. Mm. Now, they do things that are probably not on the list of the 10,000 things that regular Medicare pays for. So the, the, one of the ways you prevent amputations and ulcers is you make sure your patient has dry feet and dry socks. Well, I don't think you know dry feet, dry socks are on the list of 10,000 things uh, traditional Medicare pays for. Blindness is another problem with older diabetics. Um, again, we have um, a much higher rate in regular Medicare than the Medicare Advantage plans. It costs $100,000 a year, by the way, for the amputations, Twenty dollars to $30,000 a year for the blindness. Uh, congestive heart failure, again, we have um, a significant difference in outcomes in Medicare Advantage and traditional uh, Medicare. So, um, so these plans um, act differently than regular Medicare. Their financial incentives are, are different. Uh, Howerson says the death rate for dual eligible patients with some conditions uh, is 40% higher than it is in Medicare Advantage plans. Um, I will say that one thing, if you, if you read what George Halverson has to say and you read the kinds of articles that have been appearing in Health Affairs, you will think you know, we're describing two different worlds. Uh, my only problem with Halverson's description is he calls Medicare fee-for-service and he calls Medicare Advantage capitated. Uh, some of our best uh, Medicare Advantage plans, however, pay fee-for-service. Uh, the distinction is not, you know, how the doctor is paid. The distinction is over here we have integrated, coordinated care with the objective of keeping people healthy, and over here it's not integrated, it's not coordinated, and um, people actually make more money when the patients get sicker and require more treatment. Thank you very much, John. Uh, Doug, in Chapter 12 uh, of your, uh, your contribution to the book, you you do cost estimates that show that a comprehensive defined contribution, often referred to as premium support system, driven by consumer choice and a rather robust competition, yep. uh, would result in major savings uh, for both Medicare patients and also taxpayers. Your focus, uh, the chapter, your, your chapter focus is primarily on taxpayer and beneficiary savings. I think, I think the question, though, uh, for a lot of Americans would be, well, is the need or the desire to move into a premium support system or a, a comprehensive defined contribution system, is, is the desire to reduce health care spending the only reason uh, for moving in that direction or creating a premium support system in Medicare? Uh, so absolutely not. Um, you know, the, I focused on the budget costs and the beneficiary out-of-pocket costs because you told me to. <laughs> but <That's> very good. <laughs> but the, the, the more important uh, part of this nice is, to tell the CBO what to do. <laughs> I'm going to have to try it more often. The more important part of the story really is to, to, to take some lessons that we've learned in other settings, Medicare Advantage being one of them, the power of uh, having competing plans, uh, deciding uh, which supplemental benefits uh, do, do patients value, what what things in addition to the the care um, will allow them to stay in better health, uh, improve their outcomes. Uh, look at the the Medicare Part D program where we we harnessed uh, private negotiation between manufacturers of pharmaceuticals and and the plan sponsors uh, to to deliver robust competition. Uh, and let individuals pick among those uh, plans to get the formularies that, that match their needs the best and the, the um, outcomes that they prefer. And, and in that process, we, we get extraordinarily high beneficiary satisfaction. You, if you ask Medicare Part D beneficiaries, you know, 80 to, to 90% are, are extremely happy with where they are 
and it's way cheaper for them and, and the taxpayer than I anticipated when we, when we scored it back in 2003. Um, and so we've, we've learned that we can infuse into the healthcare programs of the federal government the respect for individuals' values. They get to decide what they think is important and uh, the, the robust competition of the private sector in order to serve both the taxpayer and the beneficiary well. I think respecting the values and, and enhancing the competition are the important things in and of themselves, way more important than the dollars uh, saved on the, on the uh, federal budget. Although, I will just stipulate we need to. I mean, yeah. you know, fun facts that you should not use at um, polite cocktail parties because you'll have no friends. Um, <laughs> the Medicare program is by itself responsible for one third of all federal debt outstanding. This right. is a program that has never been designed to be financially sustainable. It bleeds red, red ink every year. And we want to get that under control on behalf of uh, the present and future generations. And we want to serve the Medicare beneficiaries better. And this is a way to do that. That's a very important point, because Medicare, aside from the fact that it spends so much money, and as you point out, is contributing to the deficits in the nas national debt, uh, Medicare is governed by a very powerful regulatory regime. Yeah. Um, uh, the Medicare bureaucracy is referred to as this Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. And for years, of course, uh, this bureaucracy sets prices uh, for, as, as John pointed out, sets prices for 10,000 medical procedures in over 3,000 counties throughout the United States. And frankly, it doesn't do a real good job at that. But Medicare Advantage and the coming of Medicare Advantage uh, basically introduces a new dynamic into the system. Um, and that has an effect on the Medicare bureaucracy. So I was going to ask, ask you, Brian, um, as a medical professional dealing with senior citizens and so on, how does Medicare Advantage as a, as a system, this competitive system of private plans, change the role of CMS in the lives of your patients, of senior citizens? Before I answer that, I actually want to respond to something Doug said about beneficiaries and choice, if you don't mind. And so I, rem I remember I had this patient, <clears throat> she had six doctors, a bunch of meds that yeah. she took, admitted to the hospital, you know, pretty smart old lady. Her Medicare Advantage plan helped her get like you know, modifications to her bathroom so she can get it in and out of the bathtub. They got her the whole chairlift so she could go up and down her stairs. She had a two-story row house and a basement, you know, on a fixed income. And, uh, you know, she was on a, a DSNIP plan, a dual eligibles, special yeah. needs plan. She was yeah. Medicare or Medicaid dual eligible. And she, you know, I remember talking with her and she didn't have, you know, good teeth and she was going to get all of her teeth pulled and get Ooh. dentures and go to the dentist. And I asked her how she did that. And she said, oh, I picked the one plan that would let me do that. And I said, okay, but like, what about all your doctors? Like, you have six doctors. Like, are all of your doctors in your network? She said, well, five of the six are, so I picked a new cardiologist for this this year. And then next year, after I get my teeth fixed, when open enrollment is then, again, I guess switch back to, you know, my other MA plan that has my old cardiologist in it, right, after she got her teeth picked, fixed. So it's like, so beneficiaries, you know, can be pretty crafty, pretty smart in a good way, Right, you know, she beat a multi-billion-dollar company, um, and that that was sort of fun for me to see as her physician. But like, when you think about that, right? If we improve the plan finder and give beneficiaries better choices, like we show them, you know, how they can shop for their comprehensive health benefits package, comparing MA versus A plus B benefits plus Medigap plus Part D, which you know some of our colleagues like Lisa Graybird and others have oh, written yeah. about. Right. Like, we can empower consumers to make those choices and drive beneficiary satisfaction. To your question about like MA and how that changes the role of CMS, CMS right now is very much focused on payment levels, right? right? It's the annual cycle, the IPPS rule, the OPPS rule. All these rules happen. You know, one of them was like 1,500 pages recently. All that does is that favors, you know, the, uh, people inside the Beltway who can sit there and read a 1,500-page rule and analyze it for the appropriate stakeholder, right? <laughs> right? And then you have, you know, the usual cycle of medical specialty societies that show up uh, around the time, of course, that payment level 
levels are set, and there's a stream of you know people going into the various buildings in the capital. And so CMS focuses on payment levels, right? So you have all these bureaucrats focused on payment levels, whereas everyone from you know former Secretary Burwell to former Secretary Azar said we want the transition from volume to value because MA is an integrated comprehensive benefits package that allows the potential for CMS to stop focusing on writing 1,500-page payment level rules. Instead, focus on capitation rates, <laughs> focus on plan regulation, and then start to set population health goals, which is what I think both parties actually want for the Medicare program. Getting better value for the dollars. Right. Benefiting the seniors. Very good. Um, Can I express a concern at sure. this moment? So that, this is what I'm, I, the Medicare Advantage is hugely successful, but I don't think CMS understands that it's a fundamentally different delivery platform than the traditional fee-for-service program was. And so if you've got a, an, an MA plan with a quality standard, you're providing the, the, the defined contribution and they're, they're not hitting the appropriate quality standard. We can talk about making both those better. Why do they need to know what happened in the encounter data? You only need that if you're doing fee-for-service. They're trying to micromanage the MA plans in a way that is at odds with everything people sitting here are trying to, to accomplish, which is to deregulate the delivery system and harness the competition to get better outcomes. So I worry about the future of MA, much less getting to uh, a more robust reform. Right. Good point. Um, John Goodman, um, in the private sector, you know, and, and you are largely responsible for this in, in, in many ways as a, as a result of your work in Congress many years ago promoting relentlessly the idea of a health savings account so people could take, make money, uh, could take, make tax-free contributions to build up an account where they can use that money for routine medical services and, and protect themselves against unforeseen health consequences. We have millions of Americans today in employment-based health insurance who have health savings accounts, but we don't have it in, for senior citizens. Why can't senior citizens have a health savings account? Okay, here is something that um, a lot of people don't understand. Um, the health savings account for non-seniors is the best savings account there is. It's better than an IRA, it's better than a 401k. And the reason it's better is because uh, uh, during your working years you can save and at the time you reach 65 and enrolled in Medicare, you can use your, your medical savings, health savings account deposits to pay your Part B and Part D premiums. You can't do that with an IRA, you can't do that with a 401k. And even if you were healthy for all your working years, you'll probably exhaust your account uh, paying those premiums uh, during your senior years and you'll never pay taxes on that money at all. So when Congress created this account, they realized, well, if we allow seniors to get a tax deduction uh, for deposits to the health savings account, and they turn around and pay their premium with it, that's the equivalent of allowing them to deduct their Part uh, B premiums. And we're already giving so much to seniors, uh, they were not in a mood to, to give another tax deduction to this, uh, to this group of, of people. So that's why seniors weren't uh, allowed to do this. But there is a solution, and I, I call it the Roth Health Savings Account. And the idea is you, do, you don't get a tax deduction for making a deposit. You put after-tax dollars in the account. They can grow tax-free. But in this way, we have an account that is not very expensive from a budgeting point of view. Uh, and it would allow the third-party payer to put money in, in this account to, uh, for the chronically ill. You might say to a diabetic, you know, if you'll manage some of your care, we'll put money in an account for you. Uh, if you're compliant with your drugs and you stay away from the emergency room, you're going to have that money is for you. And if you're not compliant uh, and you go to the emergency room, you, you, you're going to bear the cost. So you get the benefits of your good decisions, you bear the cost of your bad ones. So, I, so seniors need an account. It just needs to be a Roth account, not the uh, traditional health savings account. Doug, um, opponents of this concept of defined contribution, comprehensive pre-defined contribution as a way to finance Medicare, uh, referred to often as premium support, have often demonized this as voucherizing uh, Medicare. 
uh, I've heard this over and over again. I mean, frankly, going all the way back to you know the 1990s, you know, with the Bro Thomas proposal and so on. How do, how do you respond to that criticism? Um, well, one, uh, it doesn't matter if it's a voucher. It depends what the voucher gets you. If it gets you something really good, then vouchers are fine. Yeah. Um, but, but more to the point, I, I think at the time of the discussion, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, the dominant Medicare program was the traditional fee-for-service program, and the defined contribution notion looked radically different and, and unfamiliar and and it was easy to scare seniors with voucherization of Medicare and privatizing and all, all these horrible things that have worked everywhere else in the economy. Um, so now with Medicare Advantage, you have a subsidy from the government and uh, private competition plans and you get to pick the one you want and it's the most popular form of Medicare. It will be the, more than uh, half of the enrollees uh, beginning next year. And so it doesn't look all that different. And so. People have already voucherized their Medicare voluntarily and happily, and we are just trying to improve the quality of what they get for the decision to, to go into that kind of a system. That's, I know, the, the thing that is remarkable about this uh, was at the Democratic National Convention, I think it was a couple of conventions ago, there was a lady who got up and addressed the country, and she said basically the Republicans were going to give senior citizens a certificate a voucher where they would have to go out and negotiate with a private health insurance company. <laughs> and that was the source of the demagoguery. I mean, it was well, the idea that, you know, and I've always asked, I, I remember I, I got into a, a rather spirited debate with somebody in the media. Shocked. And I asked them, I said, well, let me ask you this. Uh, does, uh, do federal employees get a voucher? And of course, the answer is no. <laughs> and you know, this has been going on for a long time. I think the point of it was psychological to really scare senior citizens that they would be left alone somehow. Is that basically the? Yeah. I mean, this was the oldest thing in politics: is get there first, try to characterize your ideas as good, their ideas as bad, and and there's the war over that getting that initial characterization. It's an attempt to to damage that brand deliberately. People still use the terms trickle-down economics. Remember, I have no idea what they're talking about at this point. It's just the words they've, they've chosen to, to signify their, dis, their dislike of things. So the most important part of that story that gets lost is the one that John pointed out at the beginning. If you're sicker, you get more. If you need more care to get quality outcomes, the system provides you with more resources. And that's, that's far from, a, from voucherizing it and making it just a certificate everyone gets. That's tailoring it to the needs of the beneficiary, which is what we ought to be doing. Right. And if I may, you know, what's interesting also about uh, the private Medicare marketplace is that competition produces health benefits innovation, which is not an oxymoron, right? You know, it's not something that you see on a, a silly TV commercial or in the movie office space. Health right. benefits innovation is a real thing, right? If you go back to the 1980s and you look at private Medicare plans, uh, Medicare fee-for-service didn't have a prescription drug benefit. Something like four-fifths of private Medicare plans did in the 80s, right, when we had the brick cell phones. So fast forward 2003, pass the MMA, get the prescription drug benefit, which is an option for fee-for-service beneficiaries subsidized by the government, delivered by the private marketplace through private competition. That's a 17-year delay. And if you remember the recent debate we had over adding, you know, the, the, our progressive colleagues want to add dental vision and hearing to traditional Medicare. Well, where did that come from? That came from private market competition in the MA marketplace where those benefits are already available. So I think that one of the things that this shows is that for the future of Medicare, for beneficiaries, actually, private market competition is something that will benefit them. Right. Let me ask you this. Uh, what do you think is the source of this intense opposition uh, to uh, this movement? I mean, I'd like to ask all three of you this, the idea of transforming Medicare into a competitive market. What, uh, what, do you, what is the real guts of this opposition? What, in other words, what is the motivation at the end? Of the it day? comes from the idea that self-interest is a bad thing in healthcare. That everything, have you ever heard Bernie Sanders say there should be no profit motive anywhere in healthcare? Well, he really believes it, and he's not the only one. And I think that's the biggest problem. That they don't, um, they don't like markets, they don't like for profit.
businesses. They don't like nonprofits that really act like for-profits. And um, I think that's it. It's also, it breaks down payment silos. We have a lot of payment silos. And, and you know, everybody in the, in the, every healthcare stakeholder I ever talked to is all for innovation and change, as long as it's not disruptive and, and doesn't mess with their payment silo. And so um, that, that's a big source of opposition. I would say it's something different. It's fear and loss of control, right? So that annual payment cycle with fee-for-service, you know when that rule is going to come out. There's a you know, proposed rule. There's comments. There's the whole games with that, right? You know, hundreds of pages of comments from every possible stakeholder that has, you know, a, a financial stake in that. And then there's the final rule. And they, they are familiar with that. Right, that's a centralized authority that they can go argue with. If we take that away or create it as one of many options, which is much more likely and more practical, then they lose that power. And the world as they know it has changed. And it's a very, very it's a rather dramatic change. The it, it loss of control over uh, the, the loss, uh, basically what you're talking about is a radical reduction in the army of lawyers, lobbyists, and consultants. Yeah, well, the, my, my generation. Tank staffers. And think tank staffers. I was going to say, my generation will finally be able to afford a house in D.C. as millennials who've endured two recessions. Oh, yes. uh, but, but I will say, you know, the, 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 the loss of control is not necessarily a bad thing, because what it does is it puts control in the hands of beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. The whole point of the Medicare program is to give health benefits for the beneficiaries, not for corporations or doctors or bureaucrats at CMS or lobbyists. It's for the beneficiaries. And so if we do start to work on these changes slowly over time, that's actually good for the population. Right. It's interesting you mentioned that, because uh, our uh, well, our colleague at Eiselmeyer always used to refer to uh, Medicare as the provider-centric system. It's not a patient-centric system, it's a provider-centric system. And all of the activity in the House and the Senate is ultimately trying to figure out how to rejigger the payment formulas to get the right formula for them, usually at the expense of uh, their colleagues who are performing perhaps a different specialty in medicine. Uh, I want to follow up with you, Brian, on something uh, that uh, has preoccupied Doug, and that is the whole question of fiscal responsibility. Um, you know, I mean, a number of us who are watching the debate on the debt limit and the debate on spending and so on, you know, we're looking at uh, what, it, what seems like, uh, you know, crazy spending within the congressional madhouse. Uh, you know, and I, I, I know I'm showing my age, but the idea of you know, annual trillion dollar deficits. I mean, it's stunning, really. I mean, it's just incredible. And then, and we're, we're developing, as, as Doug pointed out, I mean, it, it's, uh, we're looking at a situation where we're having, we're accumulating a very large and dangerous debt. Uh, your friends, uh, Doug, at the CBO talk about the potential of a fiscal crisis which I don't think uh, Americans really understand the gravity of this. Uh, you know, I don't know how far away we are from it, but in the case of Medicare Advantage, just zeroing back to the Medicare Advantage program, um, Brian, uh, kind of following up with what Doug raised, and that is the framework, the way the uh, Medicare Advantage is structured, it's, it's the way it's programmatically organized. How do you see that contributing uh, to the promotion of long-term uh, fiscal sanity. Or yeah, so, so, so sanity in healthcare policy would be a nice change. It's something that we don't get very often, right? Uh, and and you know the Medicare Advantage program and fee for service, like we need benchmark reform. That's something that Doug has been intimately involved in and knows about in great detail. That that aside, like benchmark the, reform, just so people yeah. understand, the benchmark reform refers to the the basis upon which the federal government makes a contribution to the different plans. So right. I mean, okay. And so so, so that that is that is something that you know needs to be addressed, and I think the policy community will eventually address. But Medicare Advantage writ large, it's like putting your house on a budget, right? So you know we have our mortgage that we pay, our grocery bill, et cetera, and there's an amount that we spend every month and an amount that we spend every year. Medicare Advantage is structured the same way. It's risk-adjusted capitation. So it's risk-adjusted for health status and it's capitation. So it's paid per member per month or per beneficiary per month. So there's a that's a good framework for budgeting. We can 
debate about what the appropriate capitation rates are. We can debate about what the appropriate risk adjustment methodology is. And we should have those debates. And we are, everyone is having those debates right now in Medicare Advantage. It can be quite exhausting emotionally. See article after article about Medicare Advantage risk adjustment. So that'll get sorted out. But the general principles of having a population-based budget for the Medicare program is something that could allow us to potentially budget for Medicare for maybe the first time in a thoughtful fashion ever. Yeah, Doug, do uh, you have some observations on that? Yeah, I mean, two things on that. Number one, I think that's the single most important thing we could do for Medicare from a fiscal perspective is to have it on a budget. At the moment, everyone has an open-ended draw on the Treasury, and they behave accordingly. And if the, the providers, the device uh, manufacturers, the pharmaceutical manufacturers, the beneficiaries all realized there was a finite amount of money f available to do good things, they would behave differently. So getting it on a budget by some mechanism is incredibly desirable from a fiscal point of view. I'll point out there's a lot of agreement on this across the aisle, and I don't think they quite realize it. On the left, you hear a lot of talk about how we have to create in, in, in the Medicare program bundles. We're going to have a hip bundle, a knee bundle. We're going to have a, a set of services. There's a bundle. It has to have a, a quality outcome. That's putting that set of services on a budget and asking for a quality outcome. On the right, you have Medicare Advantage. It's one big bundle. It's got quality metrics, and it's got this capitated contribution. That's, that's it. But there's an agreement about how, how to do this. It's, this one's more comprehensive. Neither is perfect. There's a, a great deal of improvement, for example, that I think would come from better quality metrics. The most important quality metric is a consumer willing to buy your service. We don't have that anywhere. Um, so so, so that, that's, that's the advantage of doing this. But there's not that much disagreement. It's just the scale. It's the scale. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, that's pretty remarkable. You, you think that there's actually a bipartisan I didn't say way that. Huh? I didn't say that. Oh, you didn't. Say that. <laughs> okay. I, think, I think there's hope. I think you know. There's hope at the there's at the level hope. of policy design. There, there's an agreement about some of the incentive effects, and and and, and that's what you see going on um, at the level of selling uh, reforms and getting legislation legislation through Congress. There's a lot of work to do. Right. Although I would add that the seniors are choosing for us. Right, because yeah. the Medicare Advantage market penetration in the Medicare program writ large is increased by one, uh, one absolute percentage point, I think, every year for the past decade, yes. and recently surpassed 50%. Right. Now, the Kaiser Family Foundation just uh, came out with their report, which said, you know, it's 50% now, which is, <laughs> which is quite remarkable. And what's even more remarkable is that our friends in the, you know, who who write the, uh, the Medicare trustees report you know, every year have always underestimated the growth of Medicare Advantage, which I always thought was kind of interesting. Um, <clears throat> uh, John, I, I have a question that I wanted to ask you about uh, your kind of provocative proposals in, your, in, your, in the book, Mo Modernizing Medicare. Uh, most people think that when you sign up for insurance, you should sign up you know, once a year and uh, that's it. And I mean, basically, you know, the, the argument is, of course, we want market stability. We, we, want, we want some stability in the market. And if you have a, an enrollment season, people make their decisions. They enroll. They get their coverage. And that's it until the next season. Now, we do that. We've been doing that in private health insurance for forever. We do it in the, the huge federal employee health benefits program. And we're doing it in Medicare Advantage. You, however, John, uh, want to change that. Uh, you, want, you want to have a situation where people can make a decision to enroll in different plans when they think that they should enroll in different plans. I imagine that uh, some of our friends in the insurance companies uh, would be very, very nervous about this proposal. But uh, why? I, I would like to hear your argument. I think other people, anybody listening to this program, especially on YouTube and so on around the country, would like to hear, you know, why you think that there ought to be a continuous open enrollment. Well, not quite continuous, but close to it. Uh, okay. we, we have a strange asymmetry here. Uh, if you're chronically ill, and whether you're in the Obamacare exchange, you're in Medicare Advantage, uh, you're going to look at the networks of the different plans you're, uh, you can choose from among. And um, you're going to choose plans based on what doctors are in that plan. But basically, after you've made your choice, you're stuck for the next 12 months. 
Uh, the insurance company, on the other hand, is not stuck. And after you've made your choice, uh, and after the open enrollment period ends, uh, they can change their network, and, and this has happened, and, and there are some tragic consequences of this happening. Uh, where uh, people have been denied access to a cancer specialist, for example, that they thought they were going to have access to. So uh, you're right, the insurance industry says, well, if we had continuous open enrollment, that would be disruptive, although I'll point out that we used to have in the individual market continuous open enrollment, and I don't remember a lot of disruptiveness. What I propose is that uh, you're going to be stuck with the plan you choose um, unless your health condition changes. If you have a new health condition, you get a heart condition, for example, you should be able to go immediately to the special needs heart plan and, um, and separately to the diabetic plan. Uh, so change in health condition, change in, uh, in the network that you had access, especially if there was a doctor treating you and now that doctor is no longer in the network, that that ought to be a condition for for switching plans, um, and um, uh, so we I, let's call it partial continuous open enrollment, and I think that would that would benefit everybody. Right. Let me ask you this: How do you respond to uh, folks in the insurance industry and elsewhere who might say, "Well, you know, John, that sounds great, but." Uh, you're really promoting adverse selection in the system, that we will have more instability in the market as a result of that, and uh, that will jeopardize the, the viability of a lot of plans if we actually had that kind of a system. How would you respond to that? Well, again, I think the, uh, the asymmetry is unfair. Uh, the insurance company can change its network uh, at the drop of a hat, but the patient can't make uh, uh, switches. Um, I think it was Senator Wyden uh, yesterday announced that his staff uh, found that for several Medicare Advantage plans, these aren't the really good ones, but for several of them, uh, their networks were ghost networks. The doctors that they claim were in their network weren't really there. Uh, to me, that would be grounds for allowing enrollees to switch to, to some other plan. So, so we, we need to make it possible for people to switch plans, especially when their health is at stake. Uh, not, not because they just happen to change their minds on a whim, but for some serious health care reason, uh, there ought to be a, a way to do this. And remember, the whole idea behind Medicare Advantage is you have risk-adjusted premiums, and um, when your health condition changes, you, you, your plan is entitled to a different premium, probably a higher premium. And, um, um, and that's the way the system works, and that's why it works so well, and that's why we have the special needs plans. All right, let me follow up on this a little bit. Yeah, Doug, I'm sorry. So there exist special enrollment periods, for example, in the, the individual the, the, market. You, you have your, for Medicare Advantage, you have your, your six-week period, and then you have a few more months when you can make a change. But beyond that, you really can't change plans until the, the next open enrollment period. So, but I, my point was, it sounds like what you're proposing is really just for exogenous things that happen to you, we have special enrollment periods much more generously to allow people to switch. Yes, but it, it, it needs to be um, uh, it needs to be close to continuous open enrollment. It, it would be. Right? The, the, it's when the events happen. Then you get you know you get an event, so you, you then get four weeks to go sign up for a new plan. Yes. Okay. Health condition change, a provider network change. Right. They lied to you about the network, right. all those things. What the insurers are afraid of is discretionary um, medical care that you're hopping around to, to have them uh, pay for and then leaving. That's all. All right, I think we're... If it's exogenous, we're, no, I, I'm trying to agree with you. Yeah. It's not like me, but... <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> Yeah, well, remember, we're, we're talking about somebody who used to uh, tell Congress what to do with a congressional oh, no. office. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, in the, in the uh, exchanges, uh, a terrible example here in Virginia, uh, a couple had a daughter with a rare cancer, and they had this one clinic. It was the only clinic in northern Virginia that dealt with this cancer, and they chose the plan, and after the open enrollment closed, uh, that the plan kicked the, that clinic out of their network, and and uh, and by the way, in in, in the uh, in the mom exchanges, if you go out of network, the plan pays nothing, almost everywhere. So this family was really uh, uh, mistreated, yeah. and I think that that's wrong. 
Okay. Let, let me ask you this, though. I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about continuous enrollment, and it brings up another question. It's not another whole area, which is somewhat controversial uh, with regard to Medicare Advantage, and that is the way in which uh, we have a risk adjustment operation, a risk adjustment system in Medicare Advantage. Um, some of the arguments uh, that are being made, especially by some, some of our friends in health affairs, is that uh, the risk adjustment uh, is so flawed that it basically is such a fundamental flaw uh, in the system that uh, it, it, it basically is, is an argument against the system. Um, risk adjustment is a complicated area, but it is an important area with regard to Medicare Advantage and Medicare Advantage going, going forward. Uh, Doug, do you have any thoughts about how we should improve the risk adjustment system? Um, I, I think the most important thing would be to stop developing the risk measures on the fee-for-service population and then applying them in Medicare Advantage. I mean, you, you ought to do the risk adjustment in MA on the MA population. Um, and r risk adjustment is different than forecasting the particular procedures a patient's going to get. And people start going down that road, and, and they're in a fee-for-service mindset. You have a characteristic of an individual. They have an age. They have a pre, uh, an identified pre-existing condition or, or two or three, um, married, unmarried, whatever. Take, take those characteristics, and then you just do that, and you don't pay attention to what goes on inside the, the care bubble, and you ask, what's, what's the outcome in terms of cost of care for a particular level of quality. That, you need the before and the after, and you do that math. And it's just math that does that. And, and, and then stop tinkering with all the stuff in between. And they're over-tinkering, I think, because they have a fee-for-service mentality. John? What, what, what's happening in the Health Affairs articles is they're comparing the Medicare Advantage plan to traditional Medicare. And the, the problem with those kinds of comparisons is that in Medicare Advantage, uh, doctors know, or they should know, that they're going to get more money if they find real you know, medical problems. And so there's pressure put upon them to, to be very careful about uh, documenting medical conditions. Whereas over traditional Medicare, there's no, no extra payment for a doctor being careful to get everything down on paper about, about the patients. Now, the recent uh, article in the New York Times made an end in health affairs made a, uh, a big deal about the fact that among the Medicare Advantage plans, some find more heart disease than others, and some find more diabetes with complications than others. And th the implication was that these plans that are finding a lot of problems are making it up, and I think it's the other way around. I think the plans that are finding a lot of problems are, are finding them because uh, it's in their financial interests. I don't think they're making up those numbers. Uh, it's in their financial set. The, the best plans <laughs> keep people healthy. And the way you keep people healthy is you discover, you know, the pre-diabetic is pre-diabetic. You don't wait till his foot needs to be amputated. And, and these plans are not all equally good. And if I have one overall improvement that needs to be made in, in Medicare advantages, it needs to be more competitive. Uh, there are plans there that, that ought to lose, they ought to go out of business because they're, 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 uh, they're not, uh, uh, not doing what they should do. The best plans in Houston, for example, if you have diabetes, they make insulin free. They make the trip, uh, the visit to the equinologist, that's free. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and it's free because it, it pays. You keep the patient out of the hospital and you, you make money. And in a, in a, the more competitive we make this market, the better is going to be the quality of care. And I have a thought. So as a practicing hospitalist, I can definitely say I agree with you, John. Like in traditional Medicare, you, you don't have an incentive to, to code all those diagnoses, right. right? And I know you don't have an incentive. I, I have my iPhone in my pocket. There's an app on it which tells me if my diagnosis coding in the hospital is not enough. I get an alert, and you know the hospital is harassing me as they practicing doc to add diagnoses codes. And I can tell you, you know, it's it's a huge business, right? Because doctors ignore that. They ignore the mind it, you know, they ignore the uh, mentorship or minding or oversight, and ignore the phone. And so, yeah, I, I would say fee for service probably is definitely undercoded. I think what we see in the health affairs articles is we see a confusion between upcoding and coding intensity. Upcoding is fraud, right? Like that's coding for something 
something that is not usually there, right? Uh, coding intensity is what we're all talking about, which is finding the diagnoses that are there that have not been accounted for or specifying more you know, complications or just adding clinical specificity. Adding clinical specificity is good for clinical communication. Now, it is also upon, you know, the market regulator and the program design if plans, MA plans, are finding more diseases or coding more diseases is more accurate and coding the complications thereof. It's incumbent upon, you know, policymakers to give plans incentives to do something with that information. Right? So I, I'm not really angry at health plans necessarily finding more diagnoses or finding more specificity, and we can and should have a debate about what degree of that is accurate and what degree is not. But if they are finding more specificity, we should give them an incentive to use that information to help the beneficiary. Right. <clears throat> rather than eliminate the incentive to code appropriately. Okay. So. It seems, though, that when we're going forward, both on risk adjustment and, and on payment, we've got a lot of work to do in terms of crafting uh, some reforms for Medicare Advantage. I'm right about that. Is that correct? I mean, this is going to be some serious, serious heavy lifting. Is that right? I mean, Doug, do you yeah, think? I think that's right. Okay. Let me ask you this. Do you think that there's a bipartisan, uh, could there be a bipartisan interest in reforming Medicare Advantage? Or do you think that there's hostility to you know, that, that? That's an interesting question. Um, uh, you have to understand the Democratic mind. Um, uh, they don't like Medicare Advantage because those are for-profit firms. They really like Medicaid. I'm not sure they realize that, that, that most Medicaid patients are being taken care of by for-profit managed care companies. Um, and. Um, uh, but if they could get over that, uh, yes, of course the two parties could come together because a lot of this is just common sense. <laughs> common I, sense. I think there's less disagreement than historically. If you just look at the map, a lot of their constituents are, are in MA plans because they're in the heavily um, concentrated urban areas that, that are, are easier to serve in MA. and so More low-income, more yeah, minority. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the minorities, low-income, absolutely. So I, think it, I don't think it divides as neatly as it did historically. Yeah, right. I, I, so one, yeah, you're right. In the Medicaid market, 72% of Medicaid bennies are in a Medicaid managed care organization. So the irony there of not liking Medicare being 50.2% Medicare Advantage is sort of entertaining. <laughs> and like when we think about, you know, we talk about premium subsidy, competitive bidding, whatever we want to call it, right? Like yeah. that, the FEHB, the Federal Health Employee yeah. Benefits Program, which you mentioned, we've talked about many times yeah. before in the past, you know, that's a premium subsidy program. Was it 72% of the weighted average of that's the plans? That's correct, yes. You know, the a yeah. ACA exchanges are also a premium subsidy, right. right? So what is wrong with thinking about how we can be more physically responsible for Medicare and creating on a better platform so that future generations or my generation even has access to Medicare benefits? Well, speaking of generations, I want to go back to Doug for a moment. I mean, this is... Uh, uh, this is an important question. It's a simple question, and I think we've already answered it in a way, but I would like, Doug, you to uh, perhaps expand on this a little bit. The whole point of moving to a comprehensive, defined contribution system, premium support, um, is to harness the power of consumer choice uh, to basically enable people to make the choices that are best for them, and at the same time, that will drive efficiencies uh, in, in the healthcare system. But here's the issue, and you hear it over and over again. You're talking about a population that is older, you know, 65, 75, 80, and so on. Is it really a sensible strategy for older Americans to make the kind, these kinds of choices effectively? And I raise this because if you really look, going all the way back to the New York Times back in the 1990s, the, base, the basic argument against moving in this direction was that the complexity of healthcare was so, so, so overwhelming that ordinary people could not actually make these decisions and that experts only could make these decisions. Doug, you've talked about this, so tell us what you think of, about that problem. So we're not asking for uh, a senior to sit on a desert island and decide for themselves out, uh, everything in their lives. <laughs> we're asking them to make 
important choices with trusted advisors and family members, and they can talk to providers and doctors. Like, there's no reason they can't do that. So the idea that somehow in healthcare and healthcare alone, you're by yourself and you have to make these severely complicated decisions, it's just, it's, it's a red herring. That's not the reality. And we make complicated decisions a lot, and we don't understand the technical aspects of them. I mean, we all buy these. How do they work? I don't know, um, right? So, so you've got advisor networks. You've got no need to be a technical expert on the thing to, to actually consume it. We do that in, in financial markets. We do that in, in product markets. We do this everywhere in the economy. And those same seniors are out making those same decisions. You know, I'm, I'm still not sure why my 90-year-old mother needs a Cooper Mini, but she's got one, right? So. Um, you know, they, they, they're participating in, in, in other places. So there's, there's that sort of philosophy of, of respecting their ability to make choices and, and getting the help they need to make them. We've also done it, right? We did it in Part D. Everyone said they'll never be able to do this. It's too hard for seniors. Um, and, and it has worked very, very well. Perfectly, no, but very, very well. And I think that's, the, that's, that's some evidence that we should uh, take seriously. Yeah, John, you had a thought. So the most natural person for a senior to turn to for advice about health care plans is that senior's primary care physician. And uh, we've really muzzled these guys. Uh, under During the Obama years, um, uh, the, the physician could not tell the patient if the patient was in an accountable care organization, which has some of the same financial incentives as, um, as a Medicare Advantage plan. Uh, even under Trump, there's been some deregulation, but a doctor cannot encourage his patient to join a Medicare Advantage plan that he's a member of. Um, so we need to unmuzzle the doctors who have, the, by the way, the most information about plans and how they work and what would be good for the patients they're treating. Yeah, and I would say improving the plan finder, right? I have Zillow to go look for a house. Uh, you know, you have Booking.com, Kayak.com, Travelocity for booking airfare, hotels, you can even use Airbnb, you could reserve a house in a, another continent, right? Like we make complex decisions all the time with help from others by providing appropriate information and you know, creating in a structured fashion. We can and should do that for Medicare. We can prove the plan finder. A thought about, pre a lagging thought I have on premium support. Uh, part of premium support is also treating fee-for-service and MA plans putting them on an equal playing field, right? If right. we're upset about risk adjustment, why don't we think about how we would apply risk adjustment to all market participants, including fee-for-service plans? Traditional Medicare, yes. Right, why don't we apply star ratings to traditional Medicare? This is not, you know, none of this should be a handout or a subsidy to private plans. Right. We need to treat the market participants and that viable public option and preserve it for the future. Uh, but that's a conversation I, do, I don't think the policy community has had. No, it's a vitally important point because we all make, we all are participating in many complex sectors of the economy, for example, like retirement and financial planning and so on, which most of us have, you know, limited expertise in these areas and we rely upon, we rely upon advocates, we rely upon family, friends and so on in order to make these decisions. And, uh, and I am told by the economist, of course, uh, that is, you know, you guys, that there are market leaders in many cases where, in other words, you get maybe 10 or 12 percent of the entire uh, demand side of the equation will actually determine the direction in which things go. And it seems that in this case, uh, Medicare Advantage seems to be doing pretty well with regard to <laughs> the rather massive increase in enrollment over the last several years. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I think uh, we are coming to the end of our uh, program. I would say this, that you know, over the next 10 years, uh, we're going to spend a lot more on Medicare than we do today, simply because of the sheer size of the senior population. And with rapid medical technology, uh, the cost of delivering medical care on a per capita basis is also going to increase. Um, so the issue is really not so much how much we spend, but the ultimate issue is, are we getting the best value for our, our Medicare dollars, uh, higher quality of care at an, an at an affordable cost? Higher quality care is, uh, and I think our, our view would be higher quality of care is not a, a product of better bureaucratic central planning. Uh, our, our colleagues uh, who have contributed to this wonderful 
effort uh, have made the point that the choice and competition in fact work. Uh, it is demonstrable. If you're interested in the details of how choice and competition uh, can work, improving the uh, Medicare program, uh, check out our new book, Modernizing Medicare, Harnessing the Power of Personal Choice and Market Competition from Johns Hopkins University Press. All good things come to an end, and uh, the, so is our program at, at its end. Uh, please give uh, our panelists a hand. And uh, thank you all very, very much for joining us. And uh, thank you all for coming to the Heritage Foundation. Thank you. And let me take the liberty of, on behalf of the panel and everyone involved in the book, of thanking Bob and Marie for their leadership oh, in doing thank it. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you, Bob.